from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode. I'm here with my beloved wife, Wendy. Hi, so good to be here with you. We've been doing this for a year now. Yeah, it's 2020. Awesome. How's your vision? <laughs> well, you know, the Lord is working on it. Hey, we wanted to share a movie recommendation. I know it's been out in the theaters for a while now, but we saw... A Beautiful Day in the a Neighborhood. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks. And Don't Walk, Run, if you haven't seen it already, it was surprisingly good. Oh, yeah. I I wasn't expecting much. When I first saw they had chosen Tom Hanks and some of the original clips were coming out, I was like, this is Forrest Gump trying to be Mr. Rogers. I'm not <laughs> sure that's going to go over so well. And within, I don't know, with the first 20 minutes of the movie, I, I almost forgot it was Tom Hanks. He mm-hmm. really entered the character. And I was also wondering, how are they going to tell this story? Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I grew up watching Mr. Rogers in the 70s, and you know, it's 31 years he had a run on TV, and I'm thinking, how are they going to tell this story? But the angle they took was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give too much away, but it's so human, it's so well done, it's redemptive, it's healing. They didn't shy away from the fact that Mr. Rogers was a Christian and mm-hmm. how inspired he was by prayer and by reading the scriptures. And it really came through in, I mean, to be honest, I, I've i cried in lots of movies, but I never cried as many different times in a movie than I, I teared up watching this Mr. Rogers movie. It was just so well done. It was. It was, it was very powerful, well acted, and it felt like a real story, not um, nothing contrived feeling yeah. to us. And I would say, you know, a benefit is that it it didn't try to make Mr. Rogers seem as though his approach was always maybe even the best. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times in the movie where he, you weren't always 100% like right. with him in the right. way that he, you know, was interacting with others. And I felt like that was balanced too. Right. You know, we admire him, but that doesn't mean we have to, you know, agree with everything that he did. And yet we see how that also brought about good in someone's life. And I think what a testimony for all of us to see that, yes, each one of us in our uniqueness can either attract or repel people in different ways, but God is at work. I don't know. It was kind of impressive to me in that way as well. To put it in JP2's language, what really struck me is that Mr. Rogers really saw the unrepeatability of the person. Mm-hmm. Whomever he was with, yeah. he saw the person. He was given eyes to see people. And that, I think, was the biggest witness of his life. We mm-hmm. all, we long, we ache to be seen, but we often settle for being looked at. And there's such a difference, you know, with that, those line of Jesus is so important when he says, they look, but they do not see. There's a huge difference. And I'll ask women in my talks because they get this right away. I'll say, women, raise your hands if you prefer to be looked at over being seen. 
and nobody raises their hand. I say, okay, how many of you prefer to be seen rather than just looked at? And they all raise their hands. What, what do they know right away? They know that a mere look is external and you end up being evaluated based on whether or not you please others in, in the way you look in an external way. But to be seen is so much deeper. It's to be acknowledged beyond the mere physical. It doesn't disregard the physical, but it sees the physical, as John Paul II says, it sees the physical as the sacrament of the person. And that's what Mr. Rogers did. Mm. I didn't know, I didn't know growing up watching Mr. Rogers that I was learning from him what it means to see people. But mm. that's what he that's what he did. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. Shall I begin with some questions? Yes. This is from an anonymous listener who says, how can I charitably discuss the topic of living together before marriage with couples who do not share the faith and who in some cases even find Christianity in general to be abrasive? I want the best for these people. And my concern comes from a genuine desire for their good. Do you know of a a secular approach to the discussion of living together before marriage? Great, great question. And we can build right on what we were talking about, about Mr. Rogers here. I don't know. if Did you plan that, Wendy, looking at the questions? Not at all. Not at all. Well, this is a perfect launching pad. Let's just take this from a, we won't quote scripture here. There's no need to. If you're not a believer, you don't even need to appeal to scripture. We're getting at something that the human heart desires. There's a battle in the human heart. The, the, the human heart also desires, you know, immediate gratification and, uh, you know, you'll hear just as many songs, or actually, you know, turn on the radio or go to iTunes or Spotify, wherever people listen to music now, and you'll hear you'll hear plenty of songs about the quick gratification that people want, you know, songs about the one night stand or how hot that person is or, you know, give it to me, baby. But you'll also hear songs yearning for love that lasts forever. Mm-hmm. I'm forever yours. Sorry, 80s catalog. But I'll often say to my audiences, you know, I'll sing that line from that song. I'm forever yours faithfully. Well, imagine I I changed the lyrics to, for two weeks I'm yours, then I'll leave. uh, That's totally different song. Where is it coming from? Where are those lyrics coming from? Where is the pain coming from? In songs like, will you still love me tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What, that, where, what, what's going on there? You know, the, even the lyrics, listen, these lyrics. Uh, it goes something like, um, is this a lasting treasure or just a moment's pleasure? Tonight the look of love is in your eyes, but will you love me tomorrow? Where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. There's something in the human heart that desires to be seen, desires to be known, desires to be loved in what John Paul II calls the unrepeatability of the person. That's what we were talking about with Mr. Rogers, that Mr. Rogers saw the unrepeatability of the person. What does that mean? It means there's no other you. And when you realize there's no other you, it means you're not a commodity. You're not dispensable. You can't be replaced. 
things are dispensable. The example I often use is your toaster is dispensable. If it breaks, you throw it away. And you don't feel bad about throwing away a thing. Your toaster is replaceable. You go and you get another toaster. You replace the other one and you don't feel guilty for replacing the other one. Nor does the toaster that you threw away feel bad that it got thrown away. Uh, Toasters are repeatable. Amazon has 10 million of the same toaster in the warehouse. But human beings, the very word we use to describe what a human being is, is the word person. And persons are indispensable. This is why it hurts when we're thrown away. When someone uses us and then discards us, it hurts us. We feel pain from that. Why do we feel pain there? Because we're indispensable, which means when someone treats us as dispensable, it hurts. Human beings are irreplaceable. When someone replaces us with someone else, it hurts us. It wounds us. Why? Because we know we're in there, whether we put a word to it or not, we know we're irreplaceable and we're irreplaceable because we're unrepeatable. I'd just like to share something about that. I have a friend, actually it's a friend of both of ours, but she shared with me some words of wisdom that she shared with her daughters who maybe are more influenced by secular thinking, but I thought was really getting at this point. She said to her daughters on more than one occasion, you're not a Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup. You're not something to be used once and thrown away. Mm, mm. You're a piece of fine china. Ooh. You're to be treated, you know, as beautiful, as a treasure, as something to never be thrown away. And she's even repeated that message to her daughters by giving them a necklace that kind of has like the just the initials for my piece of fine china. Oh, like that, that they are such a treasure. Love to, it. Love it. To know that, you know, going into any relationship, to have their antenna up about... Am I like a Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup here? You know, something to be just used once and thrown away. That's that's not my true identity. So I, I liked that just creative imagery getting at the very thing you're talking about, our sense of our unrepeatability. It's a beautiful in to the very the truths that I'm mm-hmm. getting at. It's a great way to, to talk about it as well. That if we're honest. We know we're not meant to be used and thrown away. And these are not just Christian themes. These are the themes of any human being who is willing to look honestly at what goes on in, in their hearts. Uh, these very themes come out with remarkable clarity, as I often point out in my talks in the movie Toy Story 3. Maybe I've shared this on a previous podcast. I can't remember, but uh, new to the story here is a stuffed bear named Lotso. And he is the self-appointed tyrant leader of all the toys at Sunnyside Daycare. And he's a jerk, and we're we're meant to think of him as a jerk. But then we learn his backstory. And we learn years earlier, Lotso was Daisy's favorite toy. And she took him everywhere, including on a family vacation when she mistakenly left him behind at a rest stop. And Lotso travels back through storms and whatnot to get to Daisy's house. He looks in the window and he sees Daisy playing with another stuffed bear just like him. Mm -hmm. He's been dispensed with and he's been replaced. Mm -hmm. 
He's mm-hmm. been treated as if he's repeatable, dispensable, and replaceable. And the, the narrator says, this is when Lotso snaps mm-hmm. and be, he becomes a monster inside right at this moment. And we, you know, we all know people like this in our lives who've been so wounded by painful relationships or what have you that they sabotage everybody else's relationships. Mm. And Lotso says to Woody, who's Andy's favorite to- toy, he says, you think you're special, cowboy? You ain't nothing but a piece of plastic. You're meant to be thrown away. Mm. And then there's another scene where the Ken doll is wanting to sacrifice his life to save the Barbie doll who's falling into a, a dumpster. And Lotso says, what are you doing, Ken? She's a Barbie doll. There's a hundred million just like her. And Ken says, not to me. She's not. She's the only one. And Barbie, of course, ah, she melts. (laughs) Why? And I know it's weird. We're talking about toys here. But the whole point is the toys are are us. Uh, The toys are us. That's why we relate to these movies. And what is this movie getting at? The whole theme of Toy Story 3 is you are not trash. You are not meant to be thrown away. You are not meant to be toyed with. Mm. So what's the conclusion? What's the opposite of being thrown away? Being kept forever. Mm-hmm. What's that called in the sexual relationship? Marriage. Marriage. This is what we promise to do. So I'm not going to throw you away. I'm not going to replace you with someone else. You're not repeatable. Mm. You're not replaceable. You're not dispensable. That inner core of the human being that longs to be loved there is so sacred that it has to be safeguarded with solemn promises. That's real love. And sex is meant to express that kind of love. Sex is meant to express you're indispensable, you're irreplaceable, you are unrepeatable. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never exchange you or throw you away to replace you with some, someone else. You're, that's how valuable you are to me. That's how, how I honor you because I see you, I know you, and I love you. Isn't that what we're looking for? We haven't quoted the Bible here at all. We're just looking at the human heart. Mm -hmm. To honor and love at that level demands solemn promises that I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's called marriage. Everybody, I'm utterly convinced. Yes, part of the human heart is fine with, you know, the the cheap thrill of, of easy gratification and no commitment. Yeah, sure. The heart can be attracted to that, but that's not the deepest level of the human being. Mm-hmm. And the church is inviting everyone not to settle for less when you are made for so much more. I have a question here. My wife has gotten to the point where she insists on using contraception. I'm trying to convince her to come to a TOB class, but I want to know what is okay for me to comply with in our marriage. Yeah, also says, please pray for us. Mm, mm. Bless you, brother. This is a very difficult place to be in. And I've spoken to many husbands over the years who are in a very similar place. Their wives are insisting on using contraception and the, the husband is convicted not to. I've spoken to uh, women as well who they're convicted not to use contraception and the husband insists on it. Here's just a basic principle. You as a husband, you can endure 
an evil your wife commits. For example, if she insists on inserting an IUD, but you could not use a condom. And obviously, this is not in any way God's plan for your union, but enduring an evil, tolerating an evil that you are not committing personally is different than committing the evil personally yourself. So, it may be the case that genuine love, genuine love could call you to endure that evil. Uh, But again, you can't commit it. And in that very place, in uniting to your wife, even if she's not loving you, and clearly if she's rendering the act sterile, she's withholding something of herself from you, and love involves the total unreserved gift of self. But you could still give yourself fully to her, even if she's not giving herself fully to you. And in that gift of yourself to her, Ken, and I would even invite you, I would maybe even say, should be a a prayer in your heart for her, that she, through your love, would learn how to open herself to God's plan for your marriage. Wendy, do you have any thoughts you want to add here? I think, you know, he was asking a very specific moral question, so I hope that that helps many people in that difficult moral situation. And of course, I think in all situations where the two spouses have a very different sense of basically the meaning or purpose of their union, there always has to be prayer about what is the Lord calling me to in this situation. You know, because we don't know, just from looking at the objective morality, we also don't know how you are personally impacted by your um, sexual relationship as in this compromised form. So, we can't speak to that. That's, that's yeah, I, 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 sh- I do want to, in that context, I want to add something I think is very important. That no spouse, let's just say it's a woman whose husband insists on using contraception. She's not obligated to submit or to endure that evil. She's not obligated to endure that evil. Pastorally, in a given situation, it might be appropriate to endure that evil. It might be, but she's not obligated to endure that evil. A woman could rightly say to her husband, I rejoice to unite with you as God intends. But I do not want to come together with you in, when you're treating me as an object. When you, when you are removing something integral to this embrace because you can't control yourself and you end up objectifying me, treating me not as an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable person to love as God loves, but as a, a thing for your own pleasure. I am not going to, I, I'm not going to stand for that. There, that could be an appropriate stance to take. So, again, there's, there's no moral obligation to endure the evil. But in some given situations, it, it might be the right thing to do, mm-hmm. where in other situations, it might be the right thing to say, I'm happy to come together if we can embrace God's plan, but I'm not going to come together without it. That could be right, too. Right. So, yeah, that, that sense of the subjectivity. Yes. 
in within each heart. And if something is causing harm to you on a deep level, that is going to affect how you look at what course of action to take, I guess. And if you can sense God's hand somehow in a bigger picture and are able to continue in sort of a prayerful going forward in spite of the difficulty, then that may be your path. But um, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. And we certainly have Parker and your wife in our hearts and prayers and all couples who face this particularly challenging situation. Ask the Lord's light to shine in your hearts and minds and your bodies to bring that healing that can lead to such joy and freedom. Yes. That's the good news that's there. I'll tell a story just to, to wrap this up that I, I hope will bless listeners out there. A man came to me some years ago with a very painful situation. His wife had gotten her tubes tied against his will. Mm -hmm. And he wondered if he could still, or he was like asking me, Christopher, how can I love her in this situation? Can I still make love to her in this situation? This was against his will. She did this against his will. He felt violated. He felt unloved, all understandable. But how could he love her in return? And he said, what's, the, what's the, even the use now of my giving her my seed? And I said, you can love her with all 500 million sperm. Mm -hmm. I said, imagine those 500 million gifts that you're giving her. Mm -hmm. Imagine those as 500 million kisses on those severed fallopian tubes. Mm -hmm. Just where the wound is, that's where the wound is. There's a profound physical wound here, which points to a profound spiritual wound here in that wife's heart. And you can love her with 500 million kisses on those wounds when you make love to her. Whether she knows how to receive that yet or not is another question, but love has its impact. When you love genuinely, it does not return void. It comes back bearing fruit. So, whatever for whatever that's worth, I hope that story might bless some people out there. Yes. I have a question here from a listener named Matthew. Hi, Matthew. He says, I want to ask for tips on how you would connect the theology of the body with seminary formation and for discerning the priestly life. Sure. I'm so glad you, you brought this up. You know, a lot of our questions have to do with, with marriage and questions of sexual union and sexual morality, and all of that is obviously applicable in the world of theology of the body, but so is discerning whether you're called to the priesthood and whether you're called to live a celibate life. Uh, let's go back to the frame that Scripture gives us to understand who we are and why we're here, where we come from, where we're headed. The Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman. And every human life begins with the union of male and female, sperm and egg. This is our very origin. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. We have that covenant that God wants to establish with his people. And it's a marriage covenant. Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, the love of the eternal bridegroom is literally embodied 
when the word is made flesh. And then we skip to the end of the story and the book of Revelation describes heaven as an eternal wedding feast. The purpose of the beginning of the story is to point us to the end of the story. The marriage of man and woman in the beginning is a sign of the eternal union, the eternal marriage between Christ and his church. This all comes together for us beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5, where St. Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, for what reason? St. Paul tells us right here. He says, This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. The whole reason we are male and female, the whole reason we're designed to come together in one flesh is to be a sign, a little glimmer of the eternal marriage of God and humanity, Christ and the church. And now we can understand why Jesus says in the resurrection, we're no longer given in marriage. Why? It's like saying you no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you are in heaven. You're there. The eternal marriage has come. What we're really made for, what we really long for, the only thing that will finally satisfy that ache and cry of our hearts for love and union is not human love and union, but union with God. What the saints call nuptial union with love eternal. This is what we are destined for. We are destined for the marriage of the Lamb. And now we can understand, only in this context, John Paul II says, can we understand why Christ calls some, not all, not even most, few, relatively speaking, but Christ calls some to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some skip the sign of the eternal marriage in order to devote themselves even here and now to the eternal marriage. Matthew, the question is, how are you to live out your masculine identity? And John Paul II says, every man by virtue of being a man is called in one way or another to be a husband and a father. The question for you, Matthew, is not, should I be a husband and a father? It's how should I live out my call to be a husband and a father? There's a reason we call a priest father. He marries the church and he gives the spiritual seed. Indeed, he trains in a seminary. What is he supposed to be learning to do in the seminary? He's supposed to be learning how to inseminate, give the seed that makes him a father. He's married to the church and he bears numerous spiritual children through the gift of his whole being, body, and soul in imitation of Christ. This is why a woman can't be a priest, because she can't be a father. This is where the sexual difference matters. Every woman, by virtue of being a woman, is called in one way or another to be a wife and a mother. Why do we call Mother Teresa Mother Teresa? She married Christ and bore numerous spiritual children through that profound union with Jesus. So my brother Matthew, I urge you, I invite you to consider making a real in-depth study of John Paul II's theology of the body, an integral aspect of your discernment. John Paul II himself says, I'm just quoting the Pope, 
It's not me. This is John Paul II who says, you cannot understand what you are embracing as a celibate priest unless you understand what you are sacrificing. And there is no better way to understand why we are male and female, why we are called to be husband, father, wife, mother as male and female. There's no better way. John Paul II says, study of the theology of the body is indispensable in coming to understand this call to be husband and father, wife and mother. Indispensable. So, Matthew, straight out of the mouth of John Paul II, study of the theology of the body is indispensable. That doesn't mean, you know, theology of the body is used here in a in a broad sense, he's not, the Pope is not saying, unless you study my teaching, you cannot properly, dis-. that's not what he's saying. But he is saying, we need to come to understand why we are male and female. We need to come to understand our bodies are not only biological, they are theological. We need to come to understand that each and every one of us, the fulfillment of our lives comes one way or another, by making the sincere gift of our bodies. Yes, I think that's a striking thing, that without consciously really thinking about it, we could imagine that celibate people have somehow like shut down their sexuality. They don't have sexuality. They shouldn't have sexuality. And when you're saying this gift of our bodies, that's what in... JP2's teaching is the spousal aspect, the spousal mystery and meaning of our bodies is that we are giving a bodily gift of ourselves in either vocation, in the vocation of marriage and in a celibate vocation. You cannot have celibate angels. They don't have bodies. That's right. It's a it's not an applicable term. That's right. So celibacy is bodily and it's generous. It's given. It's Amen. not withheld, shut down, repressed. It's generous and full of life, full of full masculinity, full femininity, because that's who God created. That's who he created men and women and called some to this generous gift. It's very beautiful and it's very physical in a way that perhaps is hard for the average person to see. And some of what you know you were talking about, he goes to a seminary, he gives the seed. I know you're you're kind of seeing a, a physical, spiritual connection that maybe not everyone immediately picks yeah. up on. Let me, let me make a qualifier that I think is critical here. The physical reveals the spiritual. Mm-hmm. As a husband in our sacrament, I physically give you my seed and we have physically conceived mm-hmm. children. But that's just a sign mm-hmm. of a much greater mystery. Jesus says... We cannot enter the kingdom unless we are regenerated by water and the spirit. Mm-hmm. And Nicodemus is confused. Like, whoa, what, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand the natural reality, you can't understand the supernatural reality. Mm-hmm. So the natural reality of generation is a sign for us that reveals the supernatural reality of generation. The priest is called to that Supernatural, supernatural yes. generation. He trains in a seminary because 
Grace builds on nature. Mm -hmm. The supernatural builds on the natural to reveal its fulfillment. Mm -hmm. The supernatural is the fulfillment Mm -hmm. of the natural. So it's not like a priest is kind of like a father. No, 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 no. Supernatural fatherhood is more real than natural fatherhood. That's awesome. He's being more virile, not less. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's being more virile in saying, where does he consummate his supernatural marriage? Right in the... In the mass. In the mass. And what does he say? This is my... Body. Given up for you. It's it's a bodily gift. Mm. Bodily gift. Now, we, we get in trouble, and this is where all, God, have mercy, God, have mercy. This is where all the abuse comes from when we confuse the natural and the supernatural level. He's called to give the spiritual seed, mm-hmm. right? The enemy loves to get his hands all over these mystical, glorious, profound truths and <laughs> twist them all up. Because mm-hmm. when they get twisted up in our minds, we have such a difficult time seeing the holiness of the body. And when we don't see the holiness of the body, we don't see the true meaning and purpose of the body. And when we don't see the true meaning and purpose of the body, we don't see the true meaning, purpose, and destiny of our humanity. This is what is at stake in all of these questions. The mystery that our faith hinges on is the body. Mm. It's the word made flesh. The word, God's word, is always about incarnation. The word made flesh. The anti-word, the enemy's word, the battle, the anti-Christ. St. John himself says it in one of his letters. He says, how do we recognize the anti-Christ? He's the one who denies Christ come in the flesh. The word is all about incarnation. The anti-word is about excarnation, a fleeing from the flesh, a running away from the physical. Celibacy is not a running away from the physical. If we conceive of it as such, we do not understand Christ's teaching. Celibacy, he himself was celibate. Why? So he could give up his body for the whole church. I'll end on this. I think it's really unfortunate that we've, we've called it celibacy. That's describing what it isn't. That's describing what they've given up, or put it that way. What have they embraced? They've embraced the marriage of the Lamb. We're all called to marriage. Which marriage? The marriage that begins the Bible or the marriage that ends the Bible? We're all called to the marriage of Christ and the church. Luke it is your destiny. <laughs> this is our destiny. The eternal marriage of the lamb. That's what celibacy witnesses do. So Matthew, are you called to that? I do not know. I have no crystal ball. But God has a plan for your life. And if he has called you to that, this will be the path by which you fulfill your masculine identity. Be not afraid. Brothers and sisters, we must end this episode. It has been a gift, as always, to be with you. Yes. We invite you to consider supporting the Theology of the Body Institute by becoming a patron. You can click the link to learn more about that. We want to support you more than you even support us. So we have a patron community where we offer lots of benefits, ongoing formation in the Theology of the Body. Please consider that. 
We love doing this podcast. We love this weekly time we get to have with you. You beautiful, indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gifts that you are to us. Become we, what you are. Yes, become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.